Chapter 13 of Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sherry Gardner. Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands by James T. Nichols. Chapter 13 The Home of the Passion Play. Oberammergau. Nestled at the foot of the mountains in the highlands of Bavaria is the little village of Oberammergau, the home of the world-famous Passion Play. Although of German extraction, these humble people were opposed to war with all their power, but when it came, they were compelled to submit. One of the saddest pictures during the war was that of these people as it was given by Madeleine Doty, which was published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1917. This writer said, The village was silent, and the people were in great distress. There were no carriages or even push-carts, no smiling people, no laughter, and no gay voices were heard. Old people sat about as if dazed, Five hundred and fifty out of eighteen hundred population had gone to war. The village was bankrupt. There was no money. It was like a plague-stricken place. The theater building was locked up. The little stores had nothing to sell. No person was allowed more than one egg per week, and but few could get that. People were on the point of starvation. During the season of 1910, the writer made the journey to Oberammergau on purpose to see the Passion Play, and this chapter is but a brief description of it. Journeying from Zurich, Switzerland, to Oberammergau, a stop was made at Munich. From that place, there is but one little dinky railroad and one of the greatest mobs I ever got into was at the depot in Munich. A thousand people were trying to get on a train that could carry only a few hundred. Finding a porter who was persuaded to open a compartment with the silver key, a half-dozen of us had a comfortable place. The distance to the mountain village is less than one hundred miles, but it took from five in the evening until midnight to reach it. Having purchased a ticket for the play on the following day weeks before, and with it lodging for two nights, a gentleman took me from the depot to the home of one of the players, and I went to bed. Early the next morning, while eating breakfast at the home, on looking through the door I discovered that one end of the house was a cow stable. Going from the house all that was necessary was to follow the crowd, for people seemed to be coming from everywhere. Passing through the winding, narrow streets, soon the large theater building was reached. This building is 140 feet square. The roof is supported by six gigantic arches that are 65 feet high in the center. The floor is built on an incline so that every one of the 4,000 seats is a good one. The stage reaches entirely across the building and is in the open air, the whole end of the building open. 
At each end of the stage are small buildings representing the palace of Pilate and the palace of the high priest. Back about twenty feet from the edge of the stage is a covered stage with a curtain and in which the tableaus are arranged. There are fourteen entrances to the building. The large orchestra is just in front of the stage, but lower than the people, so unless one happens to be near the platform, the musicians cannot be seen at all. The end of the entire building being open, the rain beats in, and the cheapest seats are those where one is likely to get wet should it rain. The orchestra is kept dry by a large canvas that is pulled out when the rain begins. Back in the inner covered stage is a network of ropes, pulleys, lances, arms for Roman soldiers, dishes for banquets, costumes and wardrobes for the players, all in perfect order and ready for use at a moment's notice. The play itself occupies about eight hours. There are 685 people in it, but only 120 speaking parts. The principal actors are not many, but during the play there are many children, as well as old men and women take part. There are 22 tableaus, 76 scenes, and in all, 18 acts. The tableaus represent Old Testament prophecies of the events portrayed. It must be remembered, however, that the play represents only the events that occurred during the last week of Christ's life. The music is simply wonderful. For generations, these mountain people have been developing a tenderness and pathos that really grips one's heart. The music was composed by a man by the name of Diedler about 100 years ago, and while it gives expression to the composer's tender heart, yet experts say that it reminds them of Haydn and Mozart. The paintings in the building are those of great masters. It took an entire year to paint the scenery for the play in 1910, but they could not afford to spend so much upon it in 1922. The curtains and costumes are of fine material, nothing shoddy or cheap about it. The story of the beginning of the Passion Play is as interesting as a novel. It was in the year 1633. A pestilence was raging in the villages in the mountains of Bavaria, and death rode down the valleys like a mighty conqueror. Hundreds were smitten, and the hand of death could not be stayed. Whole villages were depopulated, and even the dead were left unburied. For a while the village of Oberammergau was favored, while neighboring villages were stricken. A line of sentinels were stationed around the village, and a strict quarantine was maintained. Finally, love of home, and the desire to see his family caused a laboring man Caspar Schusler, who was working in another village, to steal through the line and spend an evening at his own family fireside. In a couple of days all was changed. The songs of the children were hushed in silence, for this man had brought the plague into the village. In thirty-three days eighty-four had perished, and scores of others were smitten by the hand of death. 
It was a great crisis, and looked as though that soon there would not be left among the living enough to bury the dead. A public meeting was called. It was a sad gathering of hollow-eyed men and women. They spent the whole day in earnest prayer. They vowed to the Lord that day that if he would hear their petition and save them, they would repent of their sins as a token of their sincerity, and that they would try to reenact the scenes of Calvary and thus give an object lesson of God's love for humanity. The chronicler says that from that moment the hand of death was stayed. Not another person in the village died from the plague. Everyone smitten recovered, and by this they knew that the Lord had heard their prayers. At once they set about to carry out their vow. From that day forward, they aimed to give the object lesson every ten years, and have done so except on occasions when they have been hindered by war, as two years ago. In 1910, a quarter of a million people endured the hardships and inconveniences of a long, tiresome journey, sometimes spending many hundred dollars to see the play. The day I spent there was one of the shortest days in my memory. Sermons not an hour long have sometimes seemed longer than this entire day. A strange silence was everywhere. There was no gaiety such as one sees at a theater. There was no applause, no laughter. Criticize it if you will, condemn it if you like. Yet the fact remains that it is the greatest object lesson of the ages. It would be hard for any man to see it and not come away with a more tender heart and a better appreciation of the world's Redeemer. The late William T. Stead truly called this play the story that has transformed the world. No other story so fills and thrills the soul. I saw non-Christian men sit trembling with emotion and great tears rolling down their faces. Sometimes one's indignation was so aroused that it was hard to sit still. At other times, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and one's heart would nearly burst. On this particular day, every one of the 4,000 seats were taken and 500 people stood up from morning until evening. It is as impossible to describe the passion play as it is to describe a song. It is real life before your eyes. I have never yet seen pictures of it that did not make me heartsick, for it is impossible to give a true picture of it on the screen. On years when the play is given, it generally begins about the middle of May and closes the last of September. They give it regularly on Sunday and Wednesday of each week during this time. During the busy season, it is often repeated for the overflow on Monday and Thursday, and occasionally on Friday. Tickets for the regular play are generally sold out beforehand, but, as usual, a great many reach the place without tickets and have to be accommodated in this way. All the years, the highest ambition of the boys and girls in the village is to so live that they will be chosen for some prominent part in the play. 
No one can be chosen unless born in the village, and this confines it to the village. No one is chosen for a prominent part if there is anything against his character, and that places a premium on right living. Hence, one can easily see their reason for hating war with all their power. While narrow in their peculiar religious ideas, no doubt, yet a more consecrated and devoted class of people are perhaps not found in another village on earth. All told, there are nearly a thousand people who are connected in some way with the play, and as the population of the village is less than two thousand, it practically takes in every family and sometimes every member of the family. The choosing of the important players is always an important event in the village. After a season closes, no characters are chosen for seven years. At length the day arrives when the committee of fourteen, who are to choose the leading characters for the play three years hence, is elected. It is a great day. The assembly meets in the town hall. Every parishioner has a vote. The mayor of the village is chairman. After this committee of fourteen is duly elected, a meeting is soon called. It takes several months to consider the problem. Every player must sign a contract to carry out his part to the best of his ability. Offenders are punished with great severity. Married women are barred from the prominent parts. It is said that more than one hundred rehearsals are held before the opening day. The receipts for a season are enormous. The sale of postcards and souvenirs greatly add to the sum. It is not surprising that these people are often accused for running the play for the money there is in it. But the leading characters only receive a few hundred dollars for the season's work. The church receives a large amount. The theater building and upkeep represents a fortune. To care for the thousands who attend, the town must have a good water supply, an up-to-date sanitary system, and many things that would be uncalled for in an ordinary town. Located as it is away in the mountains, it is very difficult to have the things that are necessary in the way of improvements. The people of Oberammergau are a humble, hard-working people. Their main business is wood carving, and they are experts in this work. Without the passion play season, the demand for their product would not be so great. As is said above, these people are very religious. They have a very expensive church or two. On a peak of one of the highest mountains in the vicinity is a gigantic cross. This is kept polished, and when the sun shines upon it, the sight is very beautiful. Many journey to the top of this mountain, and the view richly repays one for the difficult climb. End of chapter 13 Recording by Sherry Gardner